0: Hey, Matika, how you doing? Hi, (laughs)
1: Adrienne. So where are you in the world today? I'm in Kumeyaay country. The sun is shining and the weather is sweet and I'm heading to Hopi this weekend and then over to uh, visit some Pueblo friends. And then heading out to Lawrence. I'm doing a mural with some kids up there. I'm super excited about that. So I'm just on the go, keeping it pushing. How about you?
0: Uh, Still hanging out here in Wampanoag and Narragansett lands in Rhode Island. And then next week, I'll head up to uh, Toronto for a conference. And then I'll be in Kumeyaay lands for a bit after that. So we're both, Uh as per usual, (laughs) all over the place. Mm, Are you going to come to Coachella? (laughs) (laughs) Wasn't planning on it, but if you need the hipster headdress police, happy to help with that.
1: (laughs) Oh my gosh, we should be the designated hipster headdress police for Coachella. Oh, I would hate that. (laughs) The numbers of headdresses have been going down (laughs) lately. But anyway, (laughs) what do we have going on
0: on this episode today?
1: Today we're talking with Joshua Whitehead and Billy Ray Belcourt. They're our northern relatives, they're writers and thinkers, and I think you're going to love them.
0: Yeah, I mean, I'm so excited that we got to have this conversation. And I also think it's important, especially for our non-native listeners, that we call attention to the fact that these guests are from north of the border. But this is something that we in Indian country, don't really recognize that imposed border and really see the folks who are indigenous to this land, to what some communities refer to as Turtle Island, is uh, that we're all relatives. I'm someone who has really curated my Twitter follows um, online to include folks from Indigenous communities all over the world. And so I feel like I have so many um, amazing, amazing folks from what is currently known as Canada on my feed every day. And uh, sometimes I feel like I have a much more Uh, intimate knowledge of Canadian politics than a lot of folks here in the US. And while our experiences with settler colonialism obviously are different, we share so many similarities. So our guest's today were folks that I first encountered through Twitter and mostly because um, all of the folks in Canada that I follow would periodically be totally geeking out over their new work and sharing clips of them reading their work or um, Billy Ray talking about his experiences as a Rhodes Scholar. Uh, they're They've just been all over my timelines for a long time. So I was so excited that we got the chance to snap them up when they were in Washington at the same time we were recording and have this really
1: cool conversation with them. Joshua Whitehead is a and Cree from the Peguis First Nation, located in Treaty One Territory and is two-spirit, queer. You can find him at the University of Calgary in Treaty Seven Territory, obtaining his PhD in English. Joshua is a poet and a writer, but most importantly, Joshua is a storyteller. The power of his storytelling launched him into the forefront of the literary scene. His poetry collection, Full Metal Indigiqueer, is indeed, as he says, a viral song, is a round dance, is a jingle dress, is medicine. His debut novel, Johnny Appleseed, braids together human experience into a tight understanding of indigeneity and queerness.
0: Billy Ray Belcourt is from the Driftpile Cree Nation and is a PhD student in the Department of English and Film Studies at the University of Alberta. As a Rhodes Scholar, Billy Ray went to the colonizer's land to obtain his master's in women's studies, which highlighted, quote, the role of indigenous women in social resistance movements. His work has been widely published and acclaimed in magazines across Canada. His debut poetry book, This Wound is a World, splits the self wide open and merges into space and place and Indian time. His forthcoming work, Indian Coping Mechanisms, Notes from the Field, is a synesthesia made into polyphonic poetry, prose, and digital art.
1: Sorry. <laughs> All My Relations. Welcome. <laughs> hey, thanks for having us. So the podcast that we're producing that you're currently a guest on is called All My Relations. And mm-hmm. we decided to choose that topic because we've been thinking about our our relationship based identities and how our our identities are defined by our relationships with ourselves our relationships with our family our clan our ancestors and our relationships with land and water and so we're really interested in the ways that indigenous communities around the world really are are still connected to that relationship-based identity mm-hmm. and so if you could just introduce yourself uh, with that in mind in uh, your traditional way you know with your uh, or your how you would to a large group of people with your yourself your family your clan your purpose that would be really meaningful to us
2: mm-hmm. um yeah so Tansei Tamawak, hi my friends i'm joshua whitehead as was said earlier and I've been thinking about relationality a lot, um, specifically. So I'm working on a new book of book of work, um, tentatively titled "Making Love with the Land." Mm. Um, <laughs> so Leanne Simpson has an essay in her book, as we have always done, "Land as Pedagogy," which is like groundbreaking and it's amazing. It's I, so it's beautiful. One of my favorite pieces of writing. Mm-hmm. Um, but what I've been trying to do recently. Um, is call myself less of a berry picker, more of a hunter. <laughs> <laughs> Just some kidding. More mask. Yeah, a <laughs> <little more mask. laughs> I'm trying to I be like right <laughs> stoic all the time. Just kidding, no. But like thinking about the land itself as, yes, as pedagogy, but specifically I come from Manitoba. Uh, Manitoba and Winnipeg was the kind of the birthing place of Two-Spirit as a term in mm-hmm. 1990 um, at the third intertribal annual gay lesbian conference um and like also the cree word for manitoba is Manitoba Pau, which means the strait of the spirits straight as in terms of the rivers meeting mm. there so what i've been thinking about recently is okay when what ways is the land itself already kind of holding what we consider now queer pedagogies how does the land hold our stories as two-spirit peoples or as queer indigenous peoples or as trans indigenous peoples and those stories are there um and i like i like perhaps i've been thinking less of language and of those stories less as forgotten but more just kind of forgone they mm. just seem to be kind of unearthed refound reclaimed so i've been thinking about okay what does it mean for a two spirit to grow up in the straits of the spirits mm. and what ways is the straight never straight and, and what <laughs> ways <laughs> i love that and <laughs> what ways does water teach us how to be our own best queerness, and mm. our, how does water hold Two Spirit stories? Um, so like f- it's really kind of s- central around Manitoba, around the prairies. Um, it's already kind of being archives of Two spiritedness It's just our job to kind of find those stories again.
0: Mm. I love that.
3: Tansein and temsek, Billie Belcourt Nitsigasan, I'm from the Drove Cree Nation, which is in Treaty Eight Territory in northwestern Alberta. I am a Ph.D. student, as was mentioned. Uh, My family has a uh, sort of sphere of living that is localized to the reserve, uh, to Treaty 8. The vast majority of my family is there. And uh, Treaty 8, Drift Pile, Lesser Slave Lake, which is the body of water uh, that sort of frames that area, both in my mind geographically but also theoretically Uh, and so my writing i would argue is place-based to the extent that i'm trying to think through how the the north northern alberta is a place that is very much circumscribed by history Mm -hmm. but because of the absence of a rigorous kind of political literacy that many people can think themselves outside of that history Yeah. so perhaps my work if there were a governing question it would be what is it to be born into a past while at the same time illegible to it and I enter that in, similarly, in a similar way as Josh which is through the entangled categories of gender sexuality mm. race place um, you know
0: yeah Um, And you kind of touched on this in your answer, but I often get a lot of questions about the language that we use to identify ourselves whenever Mm -hmm. I'm doing big talks. And I know this happens for Matika too. People are always like, well, what are the words we're supposed to use to refer to Indigenous peoples or whatever the, what's the term? And I know both of you think a lot about the language that you use to identify yourselves in terms of two-spirit, queer, indigiqueer, whatever it is. So I'm wondering if you could share with us the language that you use to identify yourself in those ways and why that those choices are important to you?
2: Mm-hmm. Well, I suppose my mine is a mouthful. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Joshua Whitehead is an OG, Cree, Two-Spirit, queer member of Pegas First Nation, right? mm. which intimidates some people in conferences, I feel like. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I use both terms because I like Two-Spirit, that it kind of calls me back into my indigeneity as much as Indigenous peoples try to cull my queerness or push me out of Indigenous spaces because of my queerness. Mm-hmm. Um, so that calls me home. Again, it's Winnipeg. It's Manitoba. That's, that's kind of where it comes it from. Chances, yeah. So, it, yeah, I, for me, I always seem to kind of revolve and gravitate around that term um, because it's kind of a means of kind of being living in both worlds simultaneously, unabashedly, and sexually, and powerfully. <laughs> <laughs> so I <Yes>. love that. <laughs> <laughs> that's why I put the beads on. I love that. Yeah. <laughs> um, but at the same time, it's, I think, kind of revolving around terms of Sovereignty, um, terms of reconciliation in Canada, um, and I don't think it's fully enveloped within kind of linguistic and kind of modes of identity that are specific to indigenous peoples. Mm -hmm. So like the term two-spirit, many indigenous nations and linguistic systems have words for two-spirit. That is just kind of the overall pan term that was made. But right now, what I see is a lot of, specifically in Canada, um, a lot of homophobia, transphobia, uh, a lot of misogyny that places head cis men for primarily in the the middle, in a vulnerable center, right? Mm -hmm. And right now with reconciliation, there's this mood to return to tradition, this mood to return to ceremony, and this kind of move to kind of heal, which are powerful gestures, yes, but... Who I see being placed in these circles um, is primarily men, um, Mm -hmm. heterosexual, cisgendered men, um, which kind of leaves indigenous peoples who are queer, trans, or two-spirit on the peripheries and the sidelines. And, Bill, you talked about this in your interview with, uh, I believe, Jessica Johns and PRISM of thinking about, okay, we're too focused on, like, the good affects. Uh, Who are we kind of leaving, as you said, I think, in the terrain of bad affects, Mm -hmm. right? And you say that's mostly indigenous women, two-spirit, queer, and trans peoples. So I like to use the word Mm two-spirit, but right now I think it's not fully developed enough to kind of place us into indigenous worlds without having to be pained, harmed, removed, or dispossessed entirely. Mm So this move towards tradition again. This return to tradition, if you ever can do such a thing, return to ceremony, are so kind of wrapped up within neocolonial modes of thinking right. that there's no space for two-spirited people. So I can see why a lot of indigenous peoples don't like the term two-spirit because it's so kind of rooted um, in settler colonialism, mm-hmm. right? And in patriarchy, misogyny, et cetera. Um, so I like to also use indigiqueer, mm-hmm. which is just a kind of a braiding of the two, which I didn't coin. People say I did. I did not coin this. <laughs> you it popularized just it? <laughs> <laughs> I think here's your cut. <laughs> yeah. There's There's a cut hand. hand. Um, But it was just kind of floating in kind of digital spaces on social media. So I was like, I was gravitating towards that. It works like a hyperlink. You can click it and you just kind of meet amazing two-spirit peoples. Mm, But I like the term because it's a contemporary mode of thinking for indigenous peoples. Because at least within Cree, we never had words for queer. Um, These ways of being um, and these identity categories were just normalized. Mm. Um, So Chelsea Vowell writes a lot about this. So, and so does Leanne Simpson, and thinking about indigenous queer normativity. So we never had words like queer. Um, we had th- certain terminologies which would address how one lived their life, mm-hmm. uh, how they presented, how they enacted in ceremonies and in traditions and in labored forms of working. Um, so I like right now queer." Because it removes us from, like, the maw of anthropology of kind of two-spirit peoples were revered Mm -hmm. or that past tense use of it all the time to place us into kind of this imprisoned past. It puts us in the contemporary moment. It gives us futures. So I like to kind of think of Indigiqueer as the vehicle or the momentum or the energy that's driving two-spirit. Um, because right now I think Two Spirits stuck in this kind of a stagnant mode um, and it requires I think con- new contemporary emerging c- writers such as Billy Ray Ariel Twist Gwen Benaway to kind of theorize okay where is this going and where do we want it to go to and what mm-hmm. kind of past pain traumatized um, and hurtful is it kind of coming out of? And how do we kind of transform those negative affects into perhaps not only survivable ones, but ones that kind of procure futurity too.
0: Yeah, yeah. that's one of the first things I think of when I hear queer are these ideas of futurisms and like that feels very much of right now and also like of what can be. So I really like mm-hmm. it.
1: <laughs> Thank you.
3: <laughs> and I identify as queer and that has both to do with uh, my sexual life, but also my performance of gender. Uh, which is sort of more non-conforming. And I'm interested in thinking about how to corrupt the codes of masculinity, what it means for someone like me to to still use he, him pronouns and Mm -hmm. the like. And I identify as queer not two-spirit because I think I'm too much of a (laughs) (laughs) post-structuralist and two-spirit. But I do absolutely recognize that two-spirit is a very charismatic and attractive category because it's for many youth in particular, the first time that they're able to uh, interpolate themselves into um, an identity that is at its core indigenous. Mm -hmm. So it does have a kind of harm reductive and uh, culturally reclamative Mm -hmm. sort of function to it. Uh, And I, I think my queerness also is anchored to my sort of personal history, how I, in my early teenage years, began to conceptualize my identity. And that was partly through theory Mm -hmm. uh, in the university when I was an undergraduate in women's studies classes. and in sort of other literary theory courses. And that helped me understand one's sexual life is a kind of performative because it brings something about in the world. And what is brought about is of course disruptive Mm -hmm. and um, cacophonous.
0: Because you brought up the power of theory Mm -hmm. in being able to illuminate some of those things that we've been experiencing and know but haven't necessarily like seen reflected back to us. You both are such radical, innovative thinkers and are also in these spaces of academia that are very opposite in many ways of that, though we can find those amazing pockets of where yeah. things are happening. I'm also a scholar who like, went through the whole PhD thing, is now a faculty member. So I would love to hear just about your place in these academic spaces and how you think about it, how you think about the role of theory in your own uh, work that exists outside of academia, um, and just how you deal with the day-to-day of being in these these super white colonial spaces, because I know I still struggle with it a lot. So, yeah, would just love to hear about those um, thoughts.
2: mm mm-hmm. Um, How I deal with it, (laughs) why I'm here. I came to get a pack of American spirit cigarettes. (laughs) Uh, It's difficult. Um, It's exhausting. Academia. Like, okay, what does it mean for me as an Ojibwe creed to spirit person to want to write for my communities using basically like theory um Mm -hmm. which is great but it's not accessible um so like okay what does it mean for me to write an essay that's going to become a published piece in so-and-so's journal who is that? that's not accessible to the everyday person (laughs) like it's not a quotidian i think this is where creative creative arts and where storytelling comes in is to be able to take theory digest it But then regurgitate it in a way that's accessible, that's everyday language, that's steep perhaps um, in oral histories, at least with me with Cree speaking Mm -hmm. I'm in the Cree linguistic system. So it's to take theory. I think this is my job as an academic is that theory is so fundamental to decolonial strategies. But it's a strategy that's made by and for the few. Mm -hmm. Um, So my role and my responsibility, I think, as a creative writer or a storyteller is to take that, put them into stories that are Familiar um, and put them into modes of writing or forms that are familiar but accessible. Mm -hmm. So I'm trying to do that. I don't know how successful I'm being, but (laughs) and but the university, like going into the university or academia, asks for you to. do two things I think to obliterate your indigeneity at times Mm -hmm. um, because you're I you're usually the only indigenous person in that space there's usually very limited if any indigenous faculty Mm -hmm. you be kind of become the native informant of all indigenous topics (laughs) Um, so in a sense you have to kind of either hyper perform your indigeneity or kind of obliterate it Mm. because like you can't it's just too much exhaustive work you'll go home at the end of the day and you'll like need to hibernate like muskwell for like all winter (laughs) um but at the same time, I feel like it crafts you and asks for you to become a window to to consume mm-hmm. like unneedlessly like un- almost to kind of create these lists that you need to consume and then master. And so it just has this weird way of you having to take ownership over knowledge, which is and which isn't not always yours. Um, knowledge, perhaps, which is redundant. I don't need to reread the canon, but I was forced to do so. So it's just asking you continually to craft lists or modes of modes of being or modes of categorization and then to keep consuming them continually over and over and over um, so for me like that doesn't work for me mm-hmm. I, I think it's kind of an outdated way of breeding and being and kind of coming to terms with whatever this means to be a master of something or to be an expert in any type of topic expertise and knowledge aren't always in, bound in books. Um, so I think there are alternative ways to do it, and I don't think that it needs to continually require constant consumption on the part of us as academics. Um, consumption, most times, of our own peoples, yeah. of our own literatures, right? Like, where yeah. is the kind of healthy medium between the two? And I don't know, I don't know if it's always 50-50. Right mm-hmm. now it feels like it's more 20-80. Um, but trying to find that is I suppose what I'm trying to do. But for me, it always kind of returns to this idea of storytelling and yeah. creative writing.
1: For me, uh, I'm not in my community all the time anymore. You know, like I grew up in Swinomish. Um, I grew up in Tulalip. But I'm often on the road, you know, and when I left and went to school when I was 17, I didn't come back for seven years. I was in South America. I was in Europe. I was traveling all over the country. But I was all still writing about my homelands because it feels fundamental to who I am. Mm-hmm. And it, it also is terrifying for me to write about uh, Native America when I don't have my auntie there at every, at every moment to read it and and um, And so how do you navigate that and and feel confident about writing about something that maybe people at home are like, you know, how do they respond? and, And how do you do that?
2: Hmm. So the new book that I'm working on is Following on the Heels of Full Metal and of Johnny. And the work that I'm doing is similar but it's veiled differently. So the new book is a lot of creative nonfiction, mm-hmm. um, writing about kind of mental health and queer indigeneity um, and how we navigate that and what causes that. So there's pieces on insomnia, depression. There's going to be a piece on suicide, eating disorders. First one, it's scary to not have a mask that I can put on mm-hmm. where mm-hmm. Johnny is performing Johnny or like my character Zoa performs in full metal. This one is just like me speaking as a person rather than through a character, which is terrifying in mm-hmm. itself. Um, but at the same time, okay, like thinking about why am I writing about these topics? Um, again, a lot of people in my family who are deceased, I'm writing about again continually. So I've been thinking, I'm like, in what ways is my writing always and continually an act of mourning? I feel like, um, thinking about ways in which I'm trying to resummon those who have passed in my life, um, into ways that I can, I can come to, to kind of terms and cope with their death. Because the person, the people I'm writing about are my, great, my great-grandmother, um, my gra- my grandmother, my father's side, who was murdered in the 60s, which I talk about in Full Metal, and then also about uh, my aunt who passed away. Um, so my aunt was, um, she was a paraplegic, she was in a car accident on the res, rolled her van, and was paralyzed from the neck down for seven years, and then she got sick um, Based, based on kind of some type of infection. Um, it was later kind of revealed that it was her doctor's kind of misdiagnosis mm. of medication that killed her, even though that won't be admitted. Um, so she passed. And I've never had the chance to mourn my grandmother Either my grandma, one grandma was taken from me before I was born, but the other one passed when I was doing my master's um, and my aunt passed when I was here, in, when I was in Calgary. So like academia and studies and kind of everyone's like, you need to go to post-secondary. It's going to mm-hmm. change your life. have mm-hmm. pulled me from those spaces and have never given me the ability to mourn them. So I'm continually returning to sites of pain, trying to reanimate these peoples. And mm-hmm. so I can kind of come to terms with that because I haven't. Writing is mourning, but writing is kind of an ethical mourning. So I'm just trying to, like, I think, wrestle with this idea, okay, like, what are the ethics of mourning, and how does that affect and affect the body? What I'm trying to do is perhaps think of what Johnny's Cookham teaches him and Johnny Appleseed towards the end of the novel when she said she's, like, giving him this kind of mental... Projection or this lesson, where she says a humiliation is just a humility you love so much, you're transformed. And I'm really trying to think mm-hmm. within Cree because we have animations rather than gender, um, and we animate things that are non-human, such as rocks, skies. But there, those are entities and kin to us. Uh, so, in what ways can we if, can we make pain something animate and akin? Can we make can we think of pain as kin? And in that way, it's going to be made love to, and in that way, it's going to be transformed, right? In what ways does pain become? material, when it's a book. Because that's a tangible thing, you can touch that, right? Mm-hmm. And what, what ways does pain become material, right? And how can you manifest the immaterial into the material? And thinking about the ways, through perhaps Nehiyawin, or the Cree language, of how to transform something painful into something manageable. It's not going to be perfect, it's not going to transform into this kind of completely inverse healing object or healing medicine, but there are ways in which that can be shifted and changed. Um, So that's just kind of the project that I'm working on right now. I'm trying to do it as quickly as I can because there's so (laughs) many, there's like my, I have my, one of my sister cousins, is suicidal because of her mother um and there's just like mad depression in the family and all across turtle island it's just like youth suicides are so extremely high yeah. because these are topics that we don't talk about perhaps they're as you would say in the kind of terrain of bad affects right so really trying to like think of them as bad affects or the things that hurt as kin i think mm. it's important That was beautiful. Yeah. Like, can we just collectively cry?
3: I know.
0: (laughs) (laughs) And like that, yeah, just the idea of like writing through these painful things as a way of of mourning, of dealing with it, of um, processing it, I think is what I do a lot in my work as well. So I think Mm -hmm. that is really powerful. I
3: think Mm -hmm. what's interesting there is you're writing not to disappear with pain, Mm -hmm. but to like enflesh it and uh, to not... Try to sublimate it into something else. So I think that's really important.
1: Mm-hmm. And well,
3: thank you. Haven't really heard it conceptualized in that yeah. way.
1: I, I want to talk about gallstones in mm. healthcare. <laughs> and I'm I, a guy. I, I, <laughs> And um, I, I actually am really interested in, what well, all of you have kind of your take on that, but I want you sort of to introduce that for the listener that doesn't know what, why I would bring up gallstones. Right.
3: <laughs> so in 2016, I did a TED Talk called Gallstones and the Colonial Politics of the Future. I think if I was thinking more entrepreneurially, I would have called it... Um, How I got gallstones at 20 or (laughs) something that just catches more people's eyes. Anyways, (laughs) since 19, I had these late night episodes in which my body felt like it was like rebelling against me. Uh, And I, I had them quite steadily until about 21 when I had the worst episode ever. So much pain that I thought I was actually dying. Uh, and for whatever reason, I still didn't call the ambulance. I drove myself to the hospital in Edmonton. And I remember like being crouched to about half my size and like using a wall to pull myself through the hospital to get to the emergency room. And it was about 6 a.m. December 21st, if I'm remembering correctly, 2015. And so I do the normal thing, which is check in with the triage center. They ask me some questions. They direct me to the lobby where I sit down. And I notice there's a few other white dudes in the, in the emergency room. They're very seamlessly moved from triage to the mm-hmm. doctor's care. And because my pain is so intense, I actually can sit down. And so I'm laying down on the floor and moving around a lot. And then two security officers are called... To tell me to sit still or they'll remove me. And so what I, how I respond is by just going into the bathroom and sort of uh, walking around until my name is called. And then the doctor comes, to gets to me, pulls me to a room to make sure I'm not lying about my pain. And once he determines that I'm not, I'm like three or four hours later diagnosed with gallstones. And it was quite shocking to him because most people don't get diagnosed with gallstones until their 40s. But... <laughs> I remember reading this one statistic that, like, upwards of 80% of Native people will have gallstones during their lifetime. And there are some tribes in the U.S. in particular, I think in New Mexico, where, like, almost all of the Native women there get gallstones. So very immediately, I knew that I was in the thick of a kind of historical process. And that my body very clearly wasn't mine. I didn't have sovereign control over it. And I remember as a teen, I always felt this sense that I had to jam-pack all this living, as much living as I could, because I didn't think that I could last that long. Mm. And perhaps that's why I sort of have lived the sort of life that I've lived at 23, 24, because sort of subconsciously, I still am motored by that Mm
1: -hmm. fear. Yeah, I had the same fear. I By the time I was 25, I'd been to, like, every continent. Right. And I graduated from school when I was, like, 20 years old because I was convinced that I wasn't going to make it past 25. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And because I'd, so many of my friends had died. Right. You know, and and it just was it's a very real experience. I, I went to a very small school. And when I was a freshman in high school, we started school with 19 N- Indians in my class. And only two of us graduated. And half of them had died by the time we well, were 21. Jesus. So... Um, it's not an illegitimate fear, mm-hmm. and um you know the healthcare experience when I was reading that this morning really resonated with me because last week one of my cousins passed away and uh, like one of my really close cousins and she, a week before that she had gone into the doctor and had such severe pain uh, and then the doctors refused to give her any sort of pain medication right. and then Um, you know we're still unsure of the outcome but allegedly there was pain pills that were um that have caused like three or four different overdoses on my on my res in the last two weeks and so there's this very real connection to healthcare and our and like our favorite people dying Mm -hmm. and um and that that's falls very much in line with the racism and Mm. the colonialism that we're fighting against and Mm -hmm. and the ways it affects our our lives and our bodies. Mm. And I've never been able to write about that. Right. You know, in in the way that you talked about um, healing through writing or... I just haven't ever found the courage to do that. And Mm -hmm. so I, I appreciate you talking about healthcare and the way that it affects, you know, our work. And I'm wondering, have you you know have you also had that experience or or you Adrian um, and you guys talk about that
2: in terms of my healthcare and myself
1: yeah or your family or your community
2: um well I, like i'm i'm going to add fuel to the fire i also had gallstones Shut up.
3: You I had not. my gallbladder removed you're going to be like <laughs> <laughs> your you guys are, the, are same the same person, person.
0: <laughs> yeah. that oh was jaw shocking <laughs>
2: This is like I think my whole family has a health like a history of he- mm-hmm. yeah. health care. Um, my father was a 60-scoop survivor, went to residential schools and day schools in and out of um, Alberta and Manitoba, was then in and out of um, youth imprisonment, I suppose, or incarceration um, because of foster cares, um, and then because of this like longevity of history, a history of substance abuse, alcoholism, um, ended up having... Cancer twice, his kidney was removed, um, a quadruple bypass, um, and every t- single time that I've kind of, we've, I've, well, I was younger, but when we would kind of go with him to these spaces, you could see the kind of contrast of treatment between himself yeah. as a as a visible indigenous person uh, and how he was treated and how he was kind of me- medicated and diagnosed was radically different than folks who were just like literally sharing the room beside him, right? Mm-hmm. Um, But I think like the most important thing that kind of navigates my life right now is my mother. Um, So she has fibromyalgia Mm. and she kind of lives wracked in pain on a daily basis. Um, She said to me, she's like, I've never had a single moment in my life for the past 20 years where I wasn't in consistent pain. Mm. And I'm trying to wonder, okay, I'm trying to think about the ways in which the body and pain... Specifically, through her example, are always in a constant mode of undoing in uh, a constant mode perhaps of losing the control of one 's body mm-hmm. and a constant means of always being continually racked with pain mm-hmm. uh, and what does that mean? How does one navigate the world like that? Um, so that 's a mode of thinking that 's always kind of in the back of my mind because I see when I go home, I see her, uh, she folds laundry, her hands are sore for three days. Um, she just told me to text me today saying her water broke, she had to kind of um, vacuum the water out of the carpets and she's like, I probably won't be able to move for three days after this. Yeah. Um, so like, I'm just trying to kind of conceptualize that and think about the ways in which the body's in consistent modes of pain. It's right. So descriptive oh, of yeah. what it is to be Native. I th- yeah, exactly. that's what I was thinking mm-hmm. too. Uh-huh. Mm-hmm.
0: Well, and then, so in your TED Talk, you talk about those ties to colonialism mm-hmm. and settler colonialism through this experience and could you talk about that a little bit too and like the ways it affects our bodies?
3: Yeah, I, th- I, I think that part of how I tried to connect my gallstones to the coloniality of the world was through this ever-present sense that the body wasn't perhaps the key container for political life and that it it wasn't a place where I could enact a kind of tribal or indigenous sovereignty. Like in Josh's mom's case, where there's always... The chronicness sort of being pulled out of your body is mm-hmm. so politically pressing, mm-hmm. you know, it's like profoundly disturbing yeah. that mm-hmm. that is not anomalous in native communities. And I'm reminded of some of the work of Dr. Janet Smiley, who's a critical health studies researcher and a doctor in Toronto. She has been in the news quite frequently over the past few years for her ability to quantitatively show that doctors across the board, across the country, differentially treated and treat Native people. And I I think too about like, I feel most racialized in a hospital Mm. or in a doctor's office. And I will often joke about like trying to dress as bougie as possible (laughs) when I'm (laughs) so sick Mm -hmm. because I want to try to signify my, uh, my way out of their stereotypes
0: but and then my experience is like different because I am a white coding woman Mm -hmm. so when I walk into these spaces I am coded as a white woman and so I don't get that racialized experience but I have dealt with so many health issues that I feel come directly from my historical trauma my like the experiences of being a native woman Mm -hmm. and I'm literally sitting here right now waiting for a phone call from my doctor to know if my cervical cancer came back so it's like and every woman in my family all of my auntie on the Native side, everyone's had a hysterectomy. Everyone has had wow. like, their womb removed from them very early on in their life for various ailments and reasons. So when I like watched your TED Talk and when we're thinking about these ideas of the body and the relationship to colonialism, it's so real in so many ways. Like Both the visceral experience of being a marked Native person in those spaces, but then also like what we carry with us that mm-hmm. is like mm-hmm. from those spaces and that past and everything so i think yeah both matika and i this morning when we were thinking about talking with you we were like, oh my God. <laughs> there's so much going on this is so this is good timing
1: we are going to take a moment to listen to billy ray recite some poetry and then talk through talk through it a minute so just have a listen
3: love and heartbreak are fuck buddies who sometimes text each other at 10 in the morning today love asks is this what the living do as he tries to shit but can't because he doesn't eat enough fiber Or exercise regularly. (laughs) It's the little things that'll kill me, he adds. Heartbreak responds, ignoring the first message. You emptied your body into the floorboards of me. They creak when I am lonely. If I am a haunted house, then let's make up a theory of negativity that notices the utopian pulse of sad stories like ours. Well, fuck, Love types out. He deletes it. He sends a selfie with the caption, how's this for a theory of negativity? Heartbreak laughs, true, he quips. Love doesn't respond right away. He thinks there is something queer about leaving loose ends untied. Love is a native boy from Northern Alberta who decided almost everything he does is an attempt to repair the brokenness of being that is indigeneity. Last month, Love fucked a security guard in the basement of a precade at midnight. Locking the door behind Love, the security guard joked, don't worry, I'm not going to kill you or anything. Love wonders if it is the possibility of being killed That partly animates his desires. That's fucked up. Heartbreak tells love when love tells him the story. Love hypothesizes that the parkade basement might be a metonym for the world. Heartbreak thinks out loud. How do you know when the world is not that basement anymore? Thank you. Can you ask one (laughs) thing?
1: Beautiful! (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Would you like to talk a little about what you were uh, thinking as you were writing that or what you were going through in your own life? Yeah.
3: I will say that that was supposed to be the first poem in the book.
1: Okay. But it got
3: moved to the second. Interesting. Which was not my choice. Because I think that it frames the project, which is one of trying to determine how to live in these spaces where it seems all of the logics of the seller state are manifesting. So in that parkade basement, I felt that I was very much a kind of overdetermined subject that everything from my survivability to my desirability were incredibly circumscribed in that it wasn't actually a joke that don't worry, I'm not going to kill you. It was a kind of confession that, that could happen. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's just such a powerful description, I think, of the always already possibility of our, of our dying or, or being killed. In. And I think what the book in general does is attempts to show that it is in the realm of sexual life where the world is made and unmade, mm-hmm. where it's won or lost. It's a (laughs) good timer I think that's probably a good place to end
0: (laughs) Josh, what I wanted to talk with you about In terms of having you read a little bit of your writing Is slightly different So if you'd like to share a poem or read something um, That would be amazing as well But I wanted to talk about the Lambda Literary Award And that beautiful letter that you wrote For... Listeners, well, Josh, I'll let you tell the story of, of what happened with that. And then um, if you'd like to read a portion of that, I would love that.
2: Sure. Um, so the Lambda Literary Awards are kind of a prominent um, award categorization within the US for LGBTQ peoples. Um, so I was awarded or nominated, sorry, uh, shortlisted with Full Medal and DigiQueer under the trans poetry categorizations. Um, so I, I was like, Okay, two things are happening here. One, you're, you're, you're kind of using two-spirit and using it in, in ways that misdirect its meaning. And two, you're interpolating me as trans because of the, you quickly Googled or used Wikipedia to tell you what two-spirit means. Masculine and feminine spirits, thereby they must be trans. <laughs> um, so I was like, okay, I need to maintain an ethics of relationality between myself and my communities and myself and my allies. Some of my, my best friends and my, my most serious people in the world are trans. And so I had some conversations. I spoke with um, Gwen Benaway, Kai Cheng Tom, Vivek Shraya, um, to ask, okay, like, what do I do? Because I knew... I knew that the trans categorizations have recently been made within Mm. the last seven years Mm -hmm. by trans women of color. Um, You can win technically without having to self-identify. Your characters can perhaps be trans. But for Mm -hmm. me, that feels like a cheap win. Mm -hmm. That is not my space to take. Many spaces have been taken from me, so I cannot take a space from them. So I withdrew the letter, um, Mm -hmm. trying to be as humble as I could be. I was very honored to be a part of that. But there is also, that points to a kind of um, a vanishing point within their own award categorizations. That two-spirit don't fit. Maybe you should start Mm. it. Right. Um, So (laughs) that was kind of the whole basis around that.
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah. And it's so powerful and bold and meaningful. And I think it's a really... uh, for me, it, it was. It's very humbling to watch another person go through that process because we're very rarely recognized for our work at all, and and silenced in the media. And you know, like I find it's very hard for us to find funding and to find spaces. And so, to make that very bold um, move was just uh, inspiring for me. So oh, thank, thank you. you, thank you. Yeah.
2: Well, I think literature is a type of accountability too. Um, I'm accountable to my characters as I say with Johnny I'm accountable to my communities um, was First Nation my larger communities I'm accountable to two-spirit queer trans peoples like so I need to be accountable at all times um, and portray an ethics of care for those and Mm -hmm. I think like that is, for me, the epitome of what literature should be doing. Mm. It's crafting mm. worlds, but crafting it? worlds. <laughs> <laughs> <Exactly>. <laughs> <laughs> so did you want me to read a bit from this? Yeah, yeah please. Oh my god, I haven't re- like returned to this in so long. Okay, maybe I'll just start with this. There are words for people like me with a nehiawewin. <laughs> words like napeu <laughs> iskweyuisat, a man who dresses as a woman. Isqueyu kad napewayat, a woman who dresses as a man. Ayakweu, a man dressed, living, accepted as a woman, and Inapikasot, Picassot: a woman dressed, living, accepted as a man. These, of course, are taken from Chelsea Vowell, um, and they may not be all terminologies for what you may call queerness within indigenous worldviews, but they are the ones that I've been gifted and storied from folks such as Chelsea Vowell um, and storytelling with my other kin. If there are more, or if I have these wrong, I apologize. Settler colonialism has taken so much from our mother tongues. Within Nehiawe, when we divide language into categorizations of animate and inanimate, rather than masculine and feminine, and it is through that we hold ourselves accountable to all of our relations, of which we include things deemed inanimate by Western ways of being and knowing. Full Metal Indigiqueer is born with that language in mind. My narrator, Zoa, is a cybernetic virus that is agender, asexual, asexed, because queerness is not a word we know. We know relationships and accountability and our birth into our communities, knowing our role and how it is we must contribute. I am an atachimo, a storyteller, and I know our role and how it is we must contribute. A making space for indigenous folks whose languages and identities do not fit within those paradigms of queerness. My narrator embraces fully the fluidity that 2SQ allows, but doesn't fully embody either or and nor do I. To put it in the easiest sense for Western languages to understand, I live my life as a gay femme and not as a trans-indigenous person. I see my trans brethren and sistren who have paved the way for these trans categorizations to be included, recognized, honored, and valued within Lambda. And only recently, may I add, and I love them all the more for it. To be a trans woman and furthermore to be an indigenous trans woman is a fight I do not know, cannot know, and do not seek to further violate and delimit. I stand by my trans kin fully, and I, having lived through the intergenerational trauma of missing and murdered indigenous women, and here I'll add girls and two-spirit peoples, the 60 Scoop Day School's transracial adoption, know in my heart and spirits that I am not a proper candidate for this award. After much talk with my communities and kin, I have come to the conclusion, conclusion that I must withdraw my name and stories from this wonderful nomination because it is not my space to occupy occupation being a story I know all too well. <laughs> oh. Shade. I love these small shade. moments here.
3: you <laughs> <laughs> uh, cast. All oh, the shade. So
0: <laughs> thank, you, Wado, oh, thank you. Thank you. Man, I just love listening to Josh read that letter. I think it's so powerful. And I think this whole conversation, i um, just, I feel so grateful that we got to have it with Josh and Billy Ray.
1: That letter like breaks me wide open. I've listened to this recording of him uh, reading that letter like I don't a couple dozen times now, and every time it brings tears my, to my eyes. It's so beautiful.
0: And I think one thing that we had that kind of comes up for me in listening to the episode that we didn't really touch on was this a little bit more about this term two spirit um and Matika I know that you have spent some time like with at the two spirit powwow out in California and like doing some film
1: work around that could you tell us a little bit about that work that you've done mm-hmm. i was invited to the two spirit powwow at uh, Bates the Bay Area American Indian two spirit powwow in San Francisco and i was i was just so inspired by the experience that I put a little film together and then the film picked up a, a bunch of positive reviews. People were super excited to to see that kind of work in my project. And so then I was like invited to the... Uh, to the International Transgender Film Festival to show to show that film, and I was invited to uh, several other Two Spirit gatherings a- around the United States to go and photograph and do some storytelling. So we ended up putting together this whole exhibition. And part of my work has been focused on fo- photographing uh, people that identify as two-spirit in Indian countries. So we've put together an exhibition of about 50 pieces now, and uh, that was just showing on Capitol Hill in Seattle. It's currently not showing anywhere, but the, the response was really, um, really shocking for me. I didn't, I was not familiar with uh, the violence Uh, that our two-spirit relatives experience. It wasn't until I would be, you know, in a public location showing the film and talking about that experience and telling stories from those communities that I, you know, people would get up and they would uh, leave in the middle of my talk when I would start talking about two-spirit rights. Um, Others would, like, giggle and turn away and make strange faces, and um, others would tell me that I didn't have a right to be having that conversation and it became this very polarized uh, experience for me and so I it it was around that time that it became very clear to me that, that I needed to do more of that work and become a better ally you know I I know some of the like from the two com website I looked up some of the statistics that and this is from um from up north but they say that like 60% of two spirit women have experienced homophobia in their communities uh two, 73% of two spirit women want to know how to protect themselves from abuse uh we know that um that our two spirit relatives experience the highest rates of domestic violence sexual assault and uh and these, like, terrible reports of of homophobia in their communities. And so, I I mean, just the other day I was doing this. I was interviewing some people here in these communities, and I was asking them about, you know, two-spirit identity and and traditional understandings of two-spirit identity, and and I sort of got a talking to from this grandma about um, our confused... millennials (laughs) you know like we need to get our get our lives together and stop being so confused you know and and this is a person who experienced violence herself both from the catholic church going to boarding schools and and forced assimilation practices and so you know in some ways it's not surprising for us to in our communities to you know that many of our elders are still um you know very homophobic and and you know like i don't want to argue with with the grandma so i didn't but you know but i also feel like uh, maybe we're not confused as millennials about our gender identities maybe we're just finally safe enough to have conversations and to return to or or if that's even possible like joshua says but you know to have the opportunity to reopen those traditional understandings.
0: Just listening to you talk about that and like the power of being able to identify as two spirit to a lot of folks in our communities um and of course like this is not a term that everyone uses or even likes i think it's something that holds a lot of power for certain individuals but hearing those stories and i know like watching the video that you made at the Bates powwow and everything like there's so much power in it and then that's why it really bothers me when non-natives use this term to refer to themselves. So there are like organizations and people who refer to themselves as two-spirit when they are non-indigenous people. And to me, that is an act of cultural appropriation that is taking something that was created by and for our community and uh, using it in a way that it was not created for Mm -hmm. with this system of power around it. And I think that It's important for non-Natives to recognize that history and the importance of this term for folks from these communities and uh, respect that and respect that boundary that they should not
1: necessarily be crossing. Mm -hmm. You know, uh, maintaining a two-spirit identity in our communities means that. You know, there had to have been for those individuals a coming out and a process of trying to find belonging and acceptance in their communities. And sometimes that was an, an easy loving process, but for most, you know most of the two spirit people i've had the opportunity to interview they talk about that experience in a very in, in a way that was very traumatic and so there's been this fight to maintain the the right to use that language and to become that person to identify that way and and i just don't think that it's appropriate for us to uh to use that word out of out of these indigenous spaces mm. i agree
0: I just wanted to offer a huge wado and thank you to our guests, to Joshua Whitehead and Billy Ray Belcourt for spending time and talking story and sharing with us. Uh it was so awesome to get to talk with them.
1: hmm We've learned so much from you, Joshua and Billy, and we love you so much. Thank you so much for for coming and spending time with us and uh Adrian will keep Twitter stalking you. Yeah. And I think uh
0: Billy Ray's book, *Indian Coping Mechanisms*, has a release date of, I think it's September thirteenth. Um, so it'll be coming out soon. Mm-hmm.
1: And can we just shout out our Indigenous scholars real quick? Isn't it Adrian? Like one in ten thousand Indigenous people go on to get a PhD, and how profoundly powerful it is that these two are doing that work. It's really a beautiful thing, and I'm and I'm. I'm so proud.
0: Yeah, I love it. I love geeking out with other Native scholars. It makes me really, really happy. This conversation about appropriation is something that we are going to continue more in-depth on the next episode.
1: Yeah, tune in to have a conversation with us, it's a whole conversation dedicated to cultural vulturing, also known as Native Appropriations. Something I know a little bit about. <laughs> you are <laughs> going to have the opportunity to hear from the master herself, Dr. Adrian <laughs> Keene on cultural appropriation. Get excited, people. It's about to get real. <laughs> Thanks, Mentika I just cracked myself up. All oh, my relations.